0: Welcome to MC Squared, a podcast that brings minds together to cultivate incredible ideas. This podcast's primary focus is dedicated to showing off highlights and discussing possible applications of some of the most innovative work that academics have spent tireless hours pioneering. Join us as we discuss the newest advances in technology so you can start unpackaging the marvels of the scientific world. I am your host, Jonathan Kramer, and today I'm joined by my studio producer, Constantine Milam. On today's episode, we attempt to understand one of humanity's largest problems. Why do humans die? And will individuals constantly forsaken to cross paths with death for all of eternity? Has modern medicine finally discovered how to prevent death? Taking a step back and looking at the statistics behind death, we may be able to see a percentage breakdown of deaths caused by stroke, heart disease, and cancer, to name a few. There's something our society has been missing in this equation. For years, we have stumbled to understand the leading cause of many of these health issues. And only recently have we truly understood what the leading cause of death is, aging. It is estimated that of roughly 150,000 people who die each day across the globe, about two thirds, 100,000 per day, die of age-related causes. Today, I speak with Aubrey de Grey, the Chief Science Officer of Sens Foundation and VP of New Technology Discovery at AgeX Therapeutics. Aubrey is leading the charge in tackling the timeless problem of aging, and has pushed his ideas so far, effectively becoming the leader of the up-and-coming field of biogerontology, the study of aging. His mission is to develop innovative medicinal technologies to prevent the aging process and rejuvenate those who have been victims of it. Without further ado, I would like to warmly welcome Aubrey de Grey to MC Squared. So first and foremost, I really appreciate you coming to speak with us about this very, very complex topic,
1: aging. Thank you for having me on the show. You know, I always say that it's really important just to go and have more advocacy in this field. So anyone who is doing a podcast or they're a journalist or anything like that and who can get the word out more and have me in a position to speak to a new audience, you know, that's making a contribution just in and of itself.
0: Well, great. I'm glad to hear that. Before we really get into the nitty-gritty details, I want to ask how you got into this field of research, meaning why aging, why do you think it's one of the most prominent afflictions of humanity, and the actual passion and dedication to research this topic further?
1: Well, I I guess I grew up, even when I was quite young, uh, with the conviction that I wanted to work on problems that were important for humanity. Uh, I don't know really how I got that way it was just something I, re- I knew from a very early age mm. um, so then the question of course was what problems and naturally I gravitated to the, th- the areas where I thought that I had the right skill set and what that actually meant in the first instance was I went into artificial intelligence research because when I was in my teens I started programming found I was good at it and thought well okay um, one of the big problems for humanity is work the fact that people have to spend so much of their time doing stuff that they would not do unless they were being paid for it. So I'll work on automation. And that worked all very well. And I did my bachelor's degree in computer science in the early 1980s. And spent several years after that doing exactly this, artificial intelligence research. But during that time, I met and married a biologist. And she was actually quite a senior biologist already, quite a lot older than me. And through her, I not only learned a lot of biology by accident, you know, over the dinner table, but I also, you know, began gradually to realize that she wasn't interested in aging. And this was bizarre. It was so obvious to me, and it had always been so obvious to me, that aging was by far the most serious problem that humanity faces, even more serious than things like work, um, so obvious that I had never taking the trouble to actually ask people whether they agreed with me. I it was like, like asking people what what color they think the sky is. You know, you just don't do that kind of thing. So gradually when it um, became apparent that it, my wife and other people, other biologists were really not very interested in aging, you know, took me a while further, a couple of years more to really come to terms with that. But eventually when I did, I thought, well, I've got to switch fields. And I happened to have... Uh, got into a position where I could do that, so that's what I did in the mid-90s, and since then I've been grinding away trying to actually make a difference, and I seem to have done all right.
0: Okay, gotcha. So you made the transition from artificial intelligence into this brand new field called biogerontology, which, for those listening, is a study of aging. So describe to me the development of this field, because I feel like it's a very new field, up and coming. We haven't always had the solution to solve aging. It, it sounds almost bizarre because most people still don't think of aging as a disease or a curable affliction. So I would right. really be interested in how this field even came about. Where did the idea come from?
1: So let me tell the whole story. So way back when medicine began you know, in the 19th century and we started to make big progress in curing infections, People, of course, were aware that there were certain things that went wrong with people's health late in life but did not tend to go wrong early in life. And they were interesting to people, but nobody really knew what to do about them. And so the best that we had was to kind of try to cure them the way that we would cure an infection, to try to attack the symptoms and try to eliminate them from the body. And of course, not much progress was made. Now, the way I look at it now in hindsight is that should have been obvious from the beginning that that would not work because something is only going to be a problem that affects older people and not younger people if it's a side effect of having been alive a long time you know if there's some kind of process going on throughout life that is initially not symptomatic it's initially harmless because the body is set up to tolerate it but eventually it progresses too far so that's kind of obvious to me now but it wasn't obvious back then now maybe a hundred years ago in the early 20th century people started to realize that this wasn't getting anywhere And they started to try and look at nature and the variation that we see in the natural world in terms of the rate of ageing, different species age at different rates. And they thought, well, maybe we can study this and figure out what's going on, why some species are better at not ageing, and maybe then we can figure out how to make ourselves better at not ageing. And that too has been completely unsuccessful, uh, largely because... Aging is such an intrinsic aspect of the way that the body works, the metabolism that is the body's normal operation. But when I say aging is an intrinsic consequence, what I really mean is that the creation of this damage that eventually outstrips what the body is set up to tolerate, that's when we get sick. So if we take it down to that, then what we're really saying is that aging is the combination of two processes. It's the process throughout life of the creation of this damage that accumulates. And then there's this late life process where the damage exceeds what the body can tolerate and we get sick. So those two processes do not actually have to be stopped in order to achieve what we want. What you can do instead is uncouple the two processes from each other by periodically going in and repairing this damage and you don't even need to repair it perfectly just repair most of it every so often and then even though the damage is still being created the overall amount of damage will be below the problematic threshold it will be within the amount that the body can tolerate and this is a concept that had been pretty much overlooked in fact totally overlooked and 20 years ago i came along and started saying this and people you know didn't really understand what the hell i was on about at first it took a while for me to really, you know, make myself understood. But now it's a totally mainstream concept. Whether, you know, how far we can take it is still a matter of, you know, there's a wide spectrum of opinion. But um, for sure, I believe that uh, this is now an established and very viable approach. And I'm by no means alone. Most of my colleagues agree.
0: Absolutely. Okay, so I guess let's jump into the actual damage then. So, You mentioned that there's an accumulation of damage over some period of time right now you've described this in your first book that you published uh, mitochondrial free radical aging theory right Um, i'd be really curious to learn more about
1: that all right so that book was my phd thesis basically it came out in 1999 which was actually one year before i started talking about comprehensive damage repair in a big way and that's because The there's one particular type of damage, the accumulation of mutations in these parts of the cell called the mitochondria, that I started focusing on first, starting in about 1996. And I came up with hypotheses for why and how these mutations accumulate, how they become bad for us when you have too many of them. And I also found ways to uh, figure out how to alleviate this problem um and so that was what i focused on first but even by the time i wrote that book i was beginning to realize that even though we didn't know it was rather unlikely that this would be a comprehensive solution it would be a contributor but there would be other types of damage that happened in a way that we also needed to address and i began to think more and more about that and by the middle of 2000 i began to realize that actually we needed to address quite a lot of different types of damage But not a ridiculous number. In the end, what happened over the the subsequent year or two was that I gravitated down to talking about just seven types of damage, of which this original one, mitochondrial mutations, was just one. And the other types of damage were things like the accumulation of waste products inside the cell or the accumulation of crosslinks, uh, of of new molecular bonds that you don't want that would reduce the elasticity of tissues that are made of long-lived proteins. And then one other was simply loss of cells, cells dying and not being automatically replaced by the division of other cells. So you get the idea, a lot of different types of damage. But the purpose of this classification was so that we could talk about what we might do. Because for each type of damage, one needs a corresponding repair approach, a strategy. And the good thing was that I was able to actually describe one in each case. In some cases, it was something that I didn't have to think up. It was just already well known. So if we take the loss of cells that I just mentioned, then we're talking about just stem cell therapy. You know, putting cells in that have been programmed in the lab. So to divide and replace the, the cells that the body is not replacing on its own. Other ones, I had to come up with my own new ideas. But again, they were drawn from work that had already been done often in other areas that had not actually come to the attention of people who studied aging. So that was a large part of why I had to spend quite a while engaging in, you know, a bit of education of my colleagues to get them up to speed on my proposal.
0: Okay, and this led you to develop the next book, Ending Aging, which actually goes through all those different damaged sites, in- including the different waste organelles or the ways in which we can actually invasively target those through phagocytes, which are essentially big Pac-Man molecules eating away all the, the garbage. Is that, is that correct for the most part?
1: Yeah, not really. So one of the other types of damage is waste products that accumulate outside of the cell. In other words, in the spaces between cells. And for that one, your description is pretty much right, that what we want to do is stimulate the immune system so that immune cells go around and gobble this stuff up. And that's very effective because it turns out that once these, once this material is inside the cell, it, it it gets broken down quite easily. And the only reason it wasn't being broken down in the first place was because it was outside the cell. But there are other types of waste product that accumulate naturally inside the cell because even there the machinery that we have to break things down is not effective it just doesn't work on on those target materials so what we've had to do there is something a little more sophisticated we've had to find other species typically bacteria that actually do have enzymatic machinery to break down these materials and we modify that machinery so that we can put it into human cells and it still works We've been quite successful there. We've been able to do that for the material that causes macular degeneration, which is the number one cause of blindness in the elderly. And we've also been able to do it for atherosclerosis, for oxidized cholesterol, which is the main thing that accumulates and causes atherosclerosis. And then there are other types of damage to do with, as I mentioned, cross-linking of extracellular material of the lattice of proteins that give the arteries their elasticity, for example. And furthermore, we have to get rid of cells that have got into a state where they're doing more harm than good, where they are secreting material that's toxic and somehow the immune system is failing to get rid of these cells. They're failing to commit suicide, so we have to encourage that. You know, there's lots of different types of damage.
0: So transitioning a bit here, I would really enjoy talking about how to reprogram these cells to actually get rid of this damaged product how do you go about introducing these outside of the body into a wide array of biodiverse organisms?
1: It depends. So in the former case, the case that you mentioned, of getting cells to engulf material that's outside the cell, this is basically just a matter of vaccination. Mm. You know, we already have the concept of you know a, a material being foreign, and that's what the immune system goes after. And cells that we're talking about here, the way they go after it is by swallowing it. So we just have to kind of vaccinate against this stuff. We have to trick the immune system into thinking that these waste products are from, uh, are like infections, like bacteria or whatever, even though they're actually created endogenously by the, by the human body. And that's been very successful. People have already succeeded in creating vaccines that cause the elimination of the material that accumulates in, outside the cell in the brain during Alzheimer's disease. And we have supported some very successful work doing the same kind of thing in the heart where it's a different kind of material that accumulates, uh, but it's still very bad for you, especially late in life. And that project has actually gone far enough that we were able to spin it out into a company. Okay,
0: so you mentioned the development of a new company. Now, does this cellular technology have anything to do with the company you're part of, Ajax Therapeutics?
1: No, that's actually a completely different company. So Ajax is not a spin out from Sense Research Foundation. There are half a dozen companies that are. I just mentioned one that's to do with this cardiac amyloid, and we've also got a couple that are to do with macular degeneration, to do with atherosclerosis, and another one to do with that stiffening I mentioned. But no, Ajax is not a spin-out. Ajax is a company created by one of my real heroes, a guy named Mike West, and it's focused on stem cells. So stem cell therapies, as I mentioned, is a very key component of this damage repair panel that we want to develop. But we ourselves at Sense have not really done very much work in stem cells over the years. And the reason we haven't is because of people like Mike West, who have been very effectively pursuing it themselves in other ways. And Mike, one of the big reasons why he's such a hero of mine, is that he has succeeded in attracting private sector money to this, which is something that we have only very recently been able to do. He's been doing it for more than 20 years. So Ajax is the latest example of that, and they are pursuing a couple of different approaches to improving what we can do with stem cells. One of them involves creating stem cells that are more faithfully what you need. In other words, a purer population of the right kind of stem cell than what other people were able to create before. And the other approach is to create stem cells or, or kind of, you know, rejuvenate stem cells actually in situ, in the body, using things that one might inject that would encourage them to essentially turn back their developmental and aging clock and become more stemish again, more STEM-like than they were in old age.
0: So there's a term then that I want to ask. With these different aging prevention cures, or the development of them at least, have we at a point in this time reached longevity escape velocity?
1: (laughs) No, we haven't. So that's a term that I coined maybe 15 years ago, and it is to describe a concept that arises because these therapies that we're going to get fairly soon are rejuvenation therapies. People often misunderstand this. They think that what we're doing at sense or Ajax or anywhere else is about slowing aging down or even stopping aging, but that's not what we're doing. What we're actually going to be doing is reversing aging by repairing the damage that the body had already laid down over life so that people become biologically like young adults again. And that's extremely important for what we can predict in the long term because in the near term, the therapies that we have any realistic chance of developing are not going to be perfect. They're going to, I would hope, be able to take people and give them maybe 20 or 30 additional years of healthy life and of course that means 20 or 30 additional years of total life but the point is that those people the people who actually get those extra years will be people who are already let's say 60 or 70 at the time that the therapies come along and that's critical because it means that those people will only be biologically 60 or 70 for the second time 20 or 30 years later uh now 20 or 30 years is a hell of a long time in the development of any technology including medicine and therefore If those people come back, they're going to want to get re-rejuvenated. And even though the original version of these therapies will not work, because that's how they got back to being biologically 60 or 70 again, by the accumulation of the difficult damage that the therapies are ineffective on, that won't matter so much, because the fact is these therapies will no longer be those original ones. They will be version 2.0 that has benefited from 20 or 30 years of additional research and development. So we will be able to actually repair not all but some of the damage that we could not repair originally and that means that these people will be successfully re rejuvenated Uh, you know we'll kick can down the road we'll actually continue to stay one step ahead of the aging problem for those same people so the idea is that we'll carry on doing that and this term longevity escape velocity is what I used to denote the minimum rate at which we need to actually achieve that improvement that continuing increase in comprehensiveness of these rejuvenation therapies in order that we will stay one step ahead of the problem and the aging won't overtake us. Now, it turns out that that rate is ridiculously slow, far slower than what we see in any other technologies. But it only kicks in once we get that version 1.0 of these things, things that are good enough to give those extra 20 or 30 years at the beginning of the process. And no, we are not at that point yet. I think we have at least a 50-50 chance of getting there, let's say 18 years from now, and that estimate is, of course, coming down. Thankfully, it's not coming down as fast as time is passing. I'm afraid, or at least it has not been, because we have had to cope with the fact that research has not been able to go as fast as it could on account of lack of funding. But that funding gap is going away progressively, as we, especially as we managed to move so many projects into the private sector, where they can gain investment, which is much easier to obtain than purely philanthropic support.
0: Out of curiosity, what amount of funding do you think would enable to expedite the process so that 18-year estimate is valid? That's a kind of a random figure or number to propose, but I'd be very curious. Yeah,
1: coming down, 15 years ago, I was saying 25 years, two or three years ago, I was saying 20 years, now I'm saying 18 years, so it's getting better. But the um the, the amount of money that I've always said we need for this is roughly between $50 and $100 million per year for all of these projects combined. And at this point, we've got pretty close to that. We've certainly got, you know, more than $20 million per year coming into the projects that are already in the private sector, that have already been spun out. But there are still a fair few projects left that have not reached the point of investability, and those ones are still being pursued within Sense Research Foundation, which is a non-profit funded by philanthropy. And we still only have a budget of about $5 million per year. So we definitely still need to ramp that up and get another, you know, 15 or $20 million per year to be able to go at the speed that the science mandates rather than being constrained by manpower and financial constraints.
0: Do you think it would be more beneficial to have different ideas of the sense Foundation, right? So you describe that there's different faculties in the damage of the human. Do you think it would be more beneficial to split those damage faculties to a larger variety of different research foundations? So then one research foundation could be focusing on a specific part of the damage mechanism, and so on and so forth? Well, or do you think that would overcomplicate the entire situation?
1: Well, no, no, I think that's exactly what we want we definitely want more and more people to be working on these things and indeed the way that we actually perform our own work is kind of what you just described in the sense that we do have our own laboratories here in Mountain View where we do some of these projects but about three quarters of our research budget actually is extramural in other words we support laboratories in institutes and universities around the country and around the world so we absolutely want diversity of more people working on these things.
0: So if I'm a student getting my bachelor's degree in maybe biology or biomedical engineering or any kind of the medical field pursuits, what kind of path or steps would I have to take to get into a field like this, to get into this one of the different damage faculties that we're speaking of
1: well of course the first thing to do is to understand as much as you can about where the science already stands and to figure out which kinds of labs are working on these things which ones we're supporting Mm -hmm. which ones are doing this work you know you can you can obviously figure out that online by looking at pubmed and so on um and you can also write to us you know you can look at our website and find out a great deal but you can also write to us and get advice then of course there's our education initiative we have a very thriving and extremely competitive sector of our activities, which involves funding a dozen or so interns each summer in our own lab and also in a variety of other labs that we support. And these interns just perform research in these various areas that we are focused on over a few months in the summer. We get extremely good people. Literally, we get oversubscribed by a factor of 50 each year. So, you know, you have to be damn good to get in. But the fact is people who are really damn good do come and they get publications even when they're still undergraduates because they're that good so that's the kind of thing that that's one thing that we absolutely support
0: that's really awesome so going into the next steps where do you see this field taking off do you think that biogerontology peaking as in the amount of influence in public sphere is
1: at its maximum definitely not i don't think we're ever going to see a maximum the fact is this is going to be by far the biggest industry of all time. I mean, look at today's anti-aging industry, which is based on products that basically don't work. It's already enormous. So the rejuvenation industry, which is what's growing up now, that's going to be based on products that actually do work, you know, even though the products are still a few years away, you know, in many cases, they're not even yet in clinical trials. Nevertheless, the amount of investment that these companies are getting is pretty good. So it's just going to grow and grow exponentially. It's already, you know, I'm already completely out of my depth in terms of just keeping up with the range of companies and the range of investors that are involved. I spend most of my life just making introductions these days because of being, you know, the figurehead in this field and being at the the epicenter of everything. And this is wonderful. You know, It's a fantastic situation to be in, but you've seen nothing yet. Next year it's going to be even bigger, the year after that it's going to be bigger still.
0: Well, that's extremely exciting. And just to give our audience a brief background, you're the chief of SENS and the vice president at Ajax Therapeutics. Right. So how do you manage between the two? I feel like there's such different...
1: Uh, it's, not, it's not all that different. So first of all, yeah, my primary affiliation is definitely still at SENS Research Foundation, where you say, I'm the chief science officer. I only have a part-time, a 30% position at Ajax. And so I'm, I'm just one of the vice presidents. I'm a vice president of new technology discovery. And actually, a large part of my role is simply to use my high profile to, to bring publicity and prominence to what Ajax are doing in terms of their existing or nearly existing products. So my actual scientific role is more long term and perhaps not so high profile right now. Um, there's, there's no conflict at all I mean we're in the same business we're all we're, we're both very much working on aspects of rejuvenation so you know it fits very nicely
0: okay last quick question then what is the next thing that you're working on that's currently in the pipeline That's past its preclinical phase and is actually entering the public sphere in terms of commercially viable techniques they can prevent aging
1: well first of all remember that sense research foundation is a foundation because it works on really early-stage stuff the investors that are getting into this field tend to be pretty visionary investors ones that are perfectly comfortable with high-risk high-reward value propositions and that means that we are able to spin projects out way before they are in clinical trials, typically a couple of years before, when they're still just beginning to get animal data, preclinical data. So, yeah, we are, you know, the things that that we're focused on at SANS tend to be very early stage things, but still very important to me. You know, I I being at the coalface every week, there's some breakthrough that makes me feel good about how things are going. But these are things that are so early that it would take half an hour for me to explain why they matter at all. Nevertheless, you know, it's really good. And, of course, some of that leads to publications. So, for example, we're just in the process of writing up the work that we've done over the past two years in addressing this problem of mitochondrial mutation accumulation. We had a paper come out at the end of 2016 that went really well, and that was a big breakthrough, and people took us very seriously after that. But, of course, we have continued to make much more progress, and so we're writing that up right now, and I guess that will be out in a few months.
0: Is there any background information you can give on this for that specific publication?
1: There's quite a lot that we've done. We've essentially cracked most of the problem now. But of course, the real way to find out these kinds of things, not just that publication, but the whole of what we do and the whole of what is being done by other people who are doing closely aligned work is to come to our conference. We're running a big conference in Berlin at the end of March, it's called Undoing Aging. You can link to it from our website. And it's it's, it's the place to be if you wanna be really up to date about what's going on.
0: Wow. Well, thank you so much for the information, Aubrey. It was a pleasure to talk to you. I really look forward to seeing the development of the SENS Foundation and Ajax Therapeutics. Is there anything else you would like to add?
1: Of course, you know, we're a charity, so any billionaires out there, you know, please uh, get in touch. But I don't mean to be frivolous about this. Of course, small donations matter just as much. That we currently, it's about 50-50, our income between small numbers of large donations and large numbers of small donations, so don't in any way think that small donations make no difference.
0: Now is there any place that our audience members can reach you on social media or any place they can follow you to stay up-to-date with your work and Sense Foundation's work?
1: Oh sure, I mean the the best place to go of course is our website, Sense.org, that has all the information, we have stuff there for every kind of audience from you know real experts right down to complete novices And there's a, you know, a a contact form there. You can write us any kind of questions. And yes, there are also, you know, uh, we have presence on Twitter and on Facebook and all the usual places.
0: Well, awesome. Uh, Thanks again. Thank you. If you like this podcast and want to support it, feel free to leave a review on iTunes. Or you can subscribe to our weekly newsletter at mcsquaredpodcast.com. Thanks again for tuning in and be sure to stay scienced up in the world of discovery. All music in this podcast was produced by Snocker. Feel free to check out his other music works on SoundCloud at S-N-O-C-K-E-R, Snocker.